Hello and welcome to the Pondering Scripture Podcast, where we'll open God's Word and let Him guide our lives. I'm your host, Jeremiah Cox. On this, the fifth episode of Pondering Scripture, we're going to conclude the first chapter of the book of James. You might remember from previous episodes, I did mention that at the end of each chapter of this study of James, lest we get too bored with this study, for lack of a better way of putting it, just so that it's not something that keeps on going on and on and on without a break, we're going to have a topical study in between each chapter. So this will conclude James for the next maybe um, four weeks or so. Um, I haven't decided quite yet, and it'll probably differ from topic to topic, and we'll have a topical study. I've also not decided yet on the topic, but we will commence with that topic on next Tuesday in that special study in between James chapter 1 and chapter 2 that doesn't have anything to do with James, but will give us a a fresh study so that we don't um, grow old with James and that we're still freshened up for each chapter that we do approach. Now, I will mention this. You should be able to have my email address available in the description of this podcast in whatever um, program you're listening to it in, and that's jeremiahstancox at gmail.com. It may be that you do have a passage or just a topic that you would be interested in hearing me discuss and, and study, and if that is the case, don't hesitate to shoot me an email, be specific about what it is you're interested in, and and make sure you do mention within the description of that email that it is about this Pondering Scripture podcast, and I'll review those, and and we may have some of those if I do get in any requests. And so be looking for that starting next Tuesday, but as I mentioned, we're going to finish James chapter 1. Now what we're going to do is finish with verses 26 and 27, Now, since there's only two verses, that really shouldn't take us as long as the other sections we've studied. But if anyone's familiar with James 1 verse 27, there are some things that are additional to discuss and some misrepresentations and applications and abuses of that verse. And we're going to just for a brief moment address some of those things. Um, after the basic and fundamental study of the initial context. So James 1 in verse 26, it says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I want us to notice that in this passage, James continues to talk about what we studied in the previous episode last week, but even furthermore, going all the way back to our first episode of verses 2 through 8, most especially with the verses immediately prior to verse 26. He's speaking of being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And so he continues with this idea of doing God's word. 
because he's talking about religion. Now that word religion is the Greek word thrakia, thraskia, and Strong defines it as ceremonial observance. I'm sorry about that beep. I did not have my computer muted in regard to that. Strong defines thraskia, religion, as ceremonial observance. He goes on to say religious worship, but I also like what he adds, religious discipline, because the two things that James goes on to define as pure and undefiled religion or to label as pure and undefiled religion, they're not acts of worship. They're not even ceremonial observances. They are just parts of being a Christian. And so religious discipline, I like a little better. Consider Arton Gingrich's definition of thraskia or religion, expression of devotion to transcendent beings. Now that's a broad description, expression of devotion to transcendent beings, especially the transcendent being the one and only true God. And so how do we express our devotion to him? Well, really, it's expressed through the keeping of his, his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verses 13 and 14, Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes with the whole purpose of man, and that's to fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. That is how we express our devotion. So religion is simply a concept of piety, of, of faithfulness to the God that we serve. So consider that in light of what he says. If he thinks he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his own tongue, what he does is deceives his heart. That man's religion is useless. And verse 19 will remember his exhortation to be swift to hear and slow to speak. And this is especially in relation to our hearing of God's word and a slowness to speak and reply against God. That is a speaking against God in contention about what is said. We paired that up with verse 21 to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And we mentioned that this is the kind of humility that accepts God's dealings with us as good, and therefore we do not dispute or resist against God's word and what he's trying to instruct for us to do. This man who doesn't bridle his own tongue is that double-minded man of verse 8. In chapter 4 and verse 8, double-mindedness is paired together with sin. He's asking for wisdom. In other words, he's showing himself or thinking himself to be religious who who wouldn't ask for wisdom if they were truly religious but when he asks for that wisdom he's got that double-mindedness on top of that he's asking for that wisdom while he's doubting we define that word it means to separate throughout or wholly it means to separate oneself from or to contend with and the person that that man is contending with is God and the wisdom God's offering him in his word. And so that man is not swift to hear, slow to speak. That man barely hears anything at all and then replies against God. He doesn't bridle his own tongue. He doesn't shut his mouth and let God decide what is best for him to do and fully submit in that spirit of meekness and receiving 
the implanted word, which then in doing the word is able to save his soul. That man deceives himself. And I think we've all known someone like that. Perhaps we ourselves have been guilty of this, of acting as if we're religious. We show up to worship. We show up to a Bible class. We claim to be those who go throughout these daily Bible reading programs and we're consistent and faithful in attendance, all of those kinds of things. And if no one knew anything else, they would think that we are very religious. We're, we're devout. We are devoted to our God, our Lord. But even though that happens, we're going our own way or someone is always, they've always got a reply. But what about this? I know that this verse is, says this, but what about this? Or, or what if this happens? And they bring up hypotheticals that most times are completely and totally unrealistic. And they just always have a reply. They always have an answer. Those people are deceiving themselves. What needs to happen is for someone to have an honest study of God's word with the full intent of doing God's word and therefore not replying, not, not answering back to God. It's no different than a child answering back against his or her parents. It's not acceptable. And after all, we are God's children. This one's religion is useless because even though you may consider it as religion, a devotion or a, a piety toward a transcendent being, the transcendent being that you're being pious before is obviously not God or else you'd be submitting to his word. And so it's useless religion. You may be doing something that someone would describe as religious, but if it's not the true religion, the pure and undefiled religion that is defined by God, it's useless. And I think we see an example of this in Matthew 7, in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's useless religion. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. Look how much I've done in the name of the Lord. But it wasn't actually in the name of the Lord. That is, it wasn't authorized by him. The only way religion is ever profitable is if it truly comes from the direction of God's word. Verse 27 continues with this thought. It defines pure and undefiled religion. And really it doesn't define it. It, it gives some examples of pure and undefiled religion. What James is not saying is that the entirety of pure and undefiled religion or even the main part of pure and undefiled religion is to, to visit the orphans and widows and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He's not speaking of a totality of religious practice. He's giving an example. And I think that this is not a random example. I think that this connects back with our example of undergoing trials in verses 9 through 11. Or at the very least, we can make those points mesh together. They complement each other perfectly. If that wasn't even in James' mind when he initially wrote this by the inspired inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, you had that lowly brother. He's poor, but he is a Christian. That's a trial. What does God say? Glory in your exaltation. And then you have this rich who is a brother as well with his own trials. He needs to glory in his humiliation because all of these things will pass away in him along with it. Well, in addition to those things, when we're 
progressing in this passage about not following your desires. That's temptation and it's not from God, but following the word of truth that's able to save your souls. Don't just hear it, but be doers of the word and that man will be blessed. Well, now you get to this example of what would God have for the poor brethren to do? What would God have for the rich brethren to do? And consider firstly, pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Where the rich man would be tempted to by his peers, those on the same financial level and status as himself, what he would be tempted to do is act as the other rich and oppress those who are less fortunate and who do not have those kinds of, of, of financial numbers in their bank account. He'd be tempted to go along with the crowd of the rich and abuse his riches and abuse his brethren and abuse others. Well, avoid that. Don't go that way. Keep oneself unspotted from the world would apply to this rich man as well. But but what you should do is what First Timothy chapter 6 talks about. And that is to, to actually use your riches, use what God has blessed you with to help others who are less fortunate. Use your riches as servants of God as your tool to serve God. And there are so many things you can do. And one of them is to visit those of your brethren who are the lowly brethren, which were oftentimes, especially in this particular time and culture, the orphans and widows. They had no breadwinner. They had no protector. They had no provider. Well, what do you do? Visit them. One might ask, what does visiting them do? Well, it might lift their spirits, of course, but Let's understand that this concept of visiting them is not simply a social concept. Don't visit them simply to socialize with them. The Greek word means, as defined by Strong, to inspect, that is, to select, and by extension, to go see, relieve. Arn Ginkrich define it in this way in light of James 1.27. To go to see a person with helpful intent. Visit. In other words, it's similar to chapter 2 of James when speaking of faith and works. An example is given. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the pure and undefiled religion that is being practiced by a faithful Christian would act in helping them by giving them what they need or helping to the capacity that you're able to help them. And so that rich person, instead of looking down on them or treating them poorly, should use what they have that God has blessed them with. And if at all possible, use that to help out their struggling brethren. Likewise, I think the poor can be addressed in this verse and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What do we often see with individuals who are struggling financially, with individuals who just can't get out of that pit, with individuals who we could describe as poor? A lot of times 
they don't handle that trial well, and they fall into the sins of envy, of covetousness. First Timothy 6 and verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And so that poor brother, it's not that God is saying you cannot get out of that and, and progress and, and get to a financial security and stability. But don't make that your, your overwhelming goal. Don't make that your God. Don't fall into the love of money and the desire to be rich because then you're going to fall into many temptations and you're going to to put your soul in danger of that eternal destruction of that perdition. So keep yourself unspotted from the world. Don't revert to stealing. Don't revert to lying. Don't, don't revert to exploiting whatever it may be. Don't go to sin to get out of the trial. Go to God to endure the trial and only look to improve through ways that are authorized by him. One extreme example of poor brethren during that time who would be tempted to fall in with the world to make their situation better is that of those who are widows, who've lost their husband, and now they have to provide for their children. And in that culture, women didn't work, of course. And, and so what are they going to do? Well, it's well documented in history that many of them prostituted themselves. And it seems absurd, but when push comes to shove, there's going to be great temptations and there needs to be the ability to bear up under them and to refuse to give in. That is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so, so many other examples and applications can be made, but we've got a couple of divine applications given to us in verse 27 about what pure and undefiled religion is. And that is ultimately coming from God's word. And we're not to just be hearers of it, but we're to be doers of it. That's James chapter one. I hope that it was beneficial to you. I hope that you've gained a lot from this podcast or at least a little bit. It's certainly been beneficial to me to study James chapter one and to be able to verbalize the fruit of my studies and it's given me a better grasp of what God is trying to tell us in James chapter one. I hope chapter two will be beneficial as well, but we will get to chapter two after the special study that will be topical in the next few weeks. Thank you for your attention, and I hope you have a blessed day. Due to our text of this podcast being so short, I wanted to point out a couple of things that aren't necessarily in line with the context of James 1. Nevertheless, I think are important to be pointed out in these two verses. We noted that James 1.26 talks about religion and being religious. Now, this is something that usually for the longest time has been accepted as, as common and pure language, speaking of religion, being religious, doing religious things. But but lately, it seems like religion has become a bad word to many people. I'll explain. They'll talk about relationship over religion. So instead of, 
of being religious, being a part of some religious affiliation or some church or some discipline or whatever it may be. I'm going to to have a relationship with Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. And really what that is, it's 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 a cop out from any responsibility to a set of rules, which which my rules personally, what what I adhere to and what I try to keep is not any of of man's wisdom, no, no discipline, not the Methodist discipline, the Baptist manual, the Catholic catechism. There's, there's no manual that I adhere to or appeal to. It's just the New Testament, just the inspired word of God. I'm a member of Christ's church, the one that he instituted. He, he said he would in Matthew 16, and it happened in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. And the standard of the one true church is the one faith, Ephesians 4 talks about, the one Lord, Ephesians 4 talks about, the one God and Father of us all that Ephesians 4 talks about. But religion, it's not a bad word. We we talked about it before in the context. It speaks of being pious before a transcendent being, devoted to a transcendent being. That being obviously is the one and only true God. The reality is that there is no such thing of a relationship with Christ apart from religion. Religion is the outward manifestation of our devotion to Christ, which is about what a what a relationship with him is about. It seems silly, but it is an actual thing that we need to be aware of because many in the world are are taking that cop out and saying, I want a relationship with Christ without all of these religious observances. But it's impossible to be faithful to God without following his word. And it's impossible to follow his word without being added to a, a local church. Obviously, not any denomination, nothing established by man or bearing a name that is not divine, but belonging to the one true church of the New Testament. Daniel H. King Sr. in his commentary on James commented in James 1 verse 26 on the word religion, and I think it it helps us out with understanding this concept and refuting this, this narrative of relationship over religion. This is what he says. The reader should also take note of the fact that this verse makes no effort at defining religion as a concept. Instead, it presents a concrete way of insisting that religion Genuine religion is a life-changing force. One's religion, then, should be more than merely a set of external forms acted out or even a portfolio of doctrinal statements assented to. In fact, the two together equal the totality of our religion. In that sense, the adjective religious refers to the external display of a set of beliefs. Acceptable religion, then, must spring from an inner spiritual reality that innately or even unconsciously expresses itself in loving action toward others who are suffering and deeply felt and thoughtfully illustrated holiness before God. I'll emphasize that last two words, before God. That's what true religion is. It's being devoted to to doing His will and being so devoted that the Word is written on your heart and, and it just comes out. You, that's who you are. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out in James chapter 1, especially in verse 26. But there's one other thing. In James 1, 27, it speaks of 
pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There are those, even of the Lord's church, who have taken this verse and they have used it as a proof text for the church support of human institutions. Now we read in 2 Timothy 1 verse 13 that we're to hold fast to the pattern of sound words. The Bible establishes a pattern of how we're to do things, not just as a, an individual, but as a church. And so we're to follow the pattern set, especially in all things, but specifically in this particular topical context of how to use the, the church's money, more specifically and accurately, the Lord's money. How does the Lord tell us to use the church's money, the, the church treasury, if you will? What's the pattern we see in the New Testament from the book of Acts throughout the epistles? Well, never does it give us authorization for the church to use the funds that were collected as commanded in 1 Corinthians 16 to give to a human institution. Never does. Now, this, this is not going to discuss in detail the era of institutionalism, but what it will do is it will show that James 1.27 cannot be used to show that institutional practices like supporting orphans' homes or widows' homes with the church treasury, it cannot be used to prove that that is authorized. If you're going to prove that it's authorized, you got to go somewhere else. It cannot be in James 1.27 for this simple reason. James 1 is not talking about the church. James 1 is not giving instruction to the collective ecclesia, the church. It's giving instruction to the individual. Consider throughout this first chapter, verse 1, it will be given to him. For he, let not that man, going all the way down to the immediate context before verse 26 and 27, that if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. Verse 25, if anyone is uh, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, this one's religion is useless. And so, and then keep oneself unspotted from the world. It's obviously talking about an individual. And so you cannot use James 1.27 to find authority for any action of the church. And the church support of human institutions is certainly not authorized by James 1.27. These were just a couple of things I thought I'd point out since we only looked at two verses. And so James 1 has been concluded, and even with some additional points, and we will look to a topical study next week. Have a blessed day. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pondering Scripture. It may be that you have some questions or comments. If so, don't hesitate to email me at jeremiahstancox at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day.